This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Friday, August 31st, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We can't agree on much as a country. Pumpkin spice, threat, menace, or delight. Chalupas, cultural appropriation or uncultured inappropriation. But I thought there was one thing we were all on board with. N-word bad. Or maybe just, not even to be so broad, white people saying the N-word bad. How bad? I'll give you an idea. I'm not going to say anything more specific than N-word. And when Samantha B called Ivanka Trump a feckless cunt, I didn't say an F-less C. So yes, some white people do use the N-word, but I think they use it purposefully so as to cause offense. Polling would indicate otherwise. YouGov and The Economist polled on the N-word, which must be an odd poll to conduct. I'd like to ask you about the N-word. Wait, which word? I'm sorry, sir. I can't be more specific. And some of the results were quite surprising. They asked Trump voters and Clinton voters, is the N-word offensive? 78% of Clinton voters said yes. Wow, that was kind of low, but maybe they were thinking in rap songs or something. Or maybe, here's another explanation, that 22% of Clinton voters are kind of racist too. What percent of Trump voters do you think said the N-word was offensive? It was 42%. How about this one? It's it's racist for whites to use the N-word. So maybe this gets at O. What if those Clinton voters were thinking about rap? All right, 86% of Clinton voters said it's racist for whites to use the N-word. Only 33% of Trump voters think it's racist for whites to use the N-word. And then there was another question where they said it's never acceptable for whites to use the N-word. A very similar percent of Clinton voters say it's never acceptable as say it's racist. That would be uh, 90% as opposed to the 86% saying just flat out racist. But the number jumped 20% among Trump voters. So whereas 33% said it was racist for whites to use the N-word, 53% of Trump voters say it's never acceptable for whites to use the N-word. So at first I was thinking, oh, so that at least they understand decorum, but maybe it's the definition of acceptable that's doing a lot of work in that poll answer. So maybe these people, meaning the 20% who think it's never acceptable, but still don't think it's racist. Maybe these people were looking at the word acceptable and saying, yeah, you just can't be accepted if you use it. Isn't it, isn't it a shame that we're, we're not more tolerant and accepting? of the use of the N-word. Now, similarly, these entire findings were printed in the Washington Post under the headline, Democrats and Republicans used to agree about the N-word, now they don't. Is us seeing eye to eye the important thing here? Or is not using the N-word the important thing here? Though it is true, Democrats and Republicans did used to agree about the N-word. They agreed it was okay. Ever hear the tapes of Democrat Strom Thurmond or Democrat George Wallace? So I'm not as in favor of consensus 
around the N-word as I am just us saying, let's not use the N-word. Can't we all get along? And by get along, I mean Trump voters, stop saying the N-word. On the show today, I spiel about Joe Biden eulogies of days gone by. Yes, we will play some clips of him singing the praises of all sorts of dead senators. But first, Strangers is a new show in a new medium. Well, not that new, a medium medium. It's Facebook. It's TV on Facebook. What will they think of next? The charming, plucky, yes, I will say it, the plucky creator of Strangers, Mia Ladofsky, is up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mia Ladofsky is the creator, director, co-writer, everything of the comedy series Strangers. Strangers is a delightful, funny show, which has a little bit of the DNA in Girls, which is a show that Mia worked for. It is on Facebook. Like, a lot of things are on Facebook, but that's the network that airs it, okay? You know how NBC used to air shows? Now it's Facebook. And Refinery29 is the sponsor. You know how the Texaco Star Theater used to be a thing? Now it's Refinery29. Hey, Mia, how are you? Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. I think my listeners appreciate the analogies because, you know, they're 78 years old and they don't understand how these things work. Perfect. My perfect audience. (laughs) What did you do? What did you do on Girls? So I was the assistant to Jesse Peretz for two years. um, And Jesse was one of their main guest directors and ended up becoming an executive producer or a co-executive producer on the show. So the reason that this show reminds me of that show is because it follows... Two main ones, but a cast, an extended cast of female protagonists, except in your case, I guess they're all, are they all gay? Are they somewhere on the gay spectrum? How's it work? It's definitely (laughs) a fluid crew. Yes, yes. Um, So Isabel Song is bisexual, Mm -hmm. and her best friend is Cam, and she is a lesbian, an out and proud lesbian. And then Isabel falls in love with a woman who is in this season who's married to a man um, but had previously identified as more queer and dated mainly women with the occasional man, but doesn't really have a label. But Cam is like that, too. Like, she's an out and proud lesbian, but she's she is n- not unknown to the company of men, correct? No, no, no. Cam, Cam, I mean, Cam maybe dabbled with okay. some men in yeah. her teens. She likes teens, to flirt with everyone, I think. Early 20s, but yeah. she's definitely like, she only goes home with women. And what about your cast? Where are they? On the sexual spectrum, yeah. you would like me to out my cast. Well, no, only only so far as, you know, the whole question of should we cast gay people, only cast gay people playing gay characters. Absolutely. Um, I will disappoint my queer fans here and say that both uh, Zoe Chow and Meredith Hagner are two of the more straight women I know. Wah, wah. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. They're both taken by not ladies. <laughs> um, yes, they're not the most fluid, but they are really open and spirited and loving and really enjoy the roles. And it was actually 
you know, it was a complicated thing in terms of casting them because you want to cast authentically. And there is kind of a shorthand. Like I remember in season one when Leisha Haley was a guest star in episode four and she's an out lesbian and she was on the L word. And so I was fangirling and geeking out a little bit while directing her. But there was also kind of a shorthand when Isabel and Cam got into a fight that was specifically kind of queer oriented. Yes. And they had kind of questions about what was going on in the scene. And there was just this like this shorthand of kind of shared experience. I have a long standing relationship with Zoe that goes back almost 30 years. I'm going to talk about this. And uh, and a really close relationship with Meredith. And they've always just been generous and loving and supportive of both, you know, my sexual identity, my love, as well as the show and wanting to see um, other voices have a showcase. Look at this one. Mm. They call this one a jewel box, which is just another word for tiny. Mm-hmm. Buddy? Mm-hmm. A little question. Do you think there's any chance we could just up our budget like a teeny, tiny, tiny bit so that we can get out of bounds we've all in? Yeah, as long as you're okay with us getting a teeny, tiny bit evicted when I can't pay rent. I got you. We're going to find a gem. It's going to have a kitchen and the bedroom. It's going to be great. We can make pancakes in bed. I love that idea. Well, that's about right. Now, Zoe, who is your main character, you knew her since preschool? Since nursery school. Nursery since school. the first day of nursery school. Wow. Yeah. And she has been an actress since she's been a professional working person, you didn't pull her from the realm of carpentry. She's an actress, right? And I would love is... to say I pulled her from the realm of carpentry. <laughs> and this is the first time you had a lot of sway over casting. Is that right? Or have you cast kind of big shows before? You well, personally had to say. Me personally? Th- yeah. Strangers is my first series. Right. And so, you know, it started as I brought the show to the directing workshop for women or AFI's directing workshop for women selected me in 2015. And it was one of the first um, episodic projects that they ever had picked. And so I made the pilot for $25,000 fundraised on Indiegogo. And so I had carte blanche to cast whoever I want, but it was also major favors nation. Um, But the origin of strangers, it was to create a platform to kind of, the dream was that Zoe and I would break out from it. That was the dream all along. That was that was yeah. the dream all You've along. You've always wanted to do something with your, not just someone you've known, very good friend of yours. I mean, she's so. truly, she's my bridesmaid. Yeah. I'm getting married in three weeks Congrats. to the love of my life. And Zoe is my bridesmaid. So she is truly one of my closest friends on the planet. And she's always, I mean, she was the star in all of the plays growing up. You know, she was Wendy in Peter Pan <laughs> and I was... Nibs, the leading lost boy. Um, so, you know, she is, you know. You Nibs. Sh- it was either Nibs or Smee, I guess, for you. <laughs> the pirate life for thee. <laughs> yes, yeah. Nibs was definitely more, was closer to my heart. Um, but Zoe's always been a star, and I've always known that. And, you know, I was living in New York, and she was living in L.A., and so I would go and stay with her for weeks at a time when I was traveling for work. And, you know, she hadn't had her moment or her breakout yet and i just saw this unbelievably talented woman who hadn't been given her chance and you know i wanted my chance and it felt like this happy marriage of friendship and 
dreams coming together. So because you like Zoe so much, how hard is it in the show to make her unlikable? I don't mean to put her in places where we recognize she made the wrong choice, but still empathize with her, but to take her to the line of unlikability. Isabel and Zoe as my protagonist, I think there is a particular protectivity over her, over the character and the person, whether it's in a mix or a color session or on set directing her. There is a certain love and caretaking that goes into kind of the creating of that world. Right. You know, I love the protag I love Isabel being so likable. I think that Zoe is so open and vulnerable and plays that so well as Isabel's song. Um that it's it's hard to make her unlikable. But she becomes pretty unlikable in moments in yeah. in episode nine in particular. Why am I here? You wanted to hang, so we're hanging. What do you want from me? Why are you doing this? I'm sorry. I know I've been like a little selfish. A little? Okay, I'm not allowed to be selfish for one day and not take care of everyone else's needs. Right. Geez, sorry. This, this was fun for you. Yeah, it was fun. You encouraged it. You were like, love, 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 all the love and love. You knew that I loved somebody else. You knew I was never gonna fall in love with you. You were complicit. You were like, I'll take whatever I can get. I don't care about heartbreak. Let's just live in the moment. I'll take the heartache if I feel like the person's worth it. And I, I really thought you were. And that was its own little battle for me of kind of having her go there. But I feel like she did it in a beautiful way. And Jesse directed the episode and it ended up being really exciting and rewarding. And I want to continue to push that line should I have the opportunity to make more. So... When season one, uh, she has a house and she Airbnbs a room. And so I said to myself, ah, I get it. I get the conceit. It's two main characters, uh, maybe someone else, ancillary that we meet along the way. And then we just rotate in guest stars. And I guess that's called something like an anthology series or I don't, I don't know. It's that, that's some kind of format. Was that the idea or did you always know you wanted to get away with, uh, away from it? In terms of moving her to New York? Or? Yeah, in terms of, did you think this was going to be a series where that guest room would be rebooked by different people every week and that would be the show? Absolutely. I mean, that was the hook for season one. Yeah. You know, I think there was also this idea of this model of high maintenance where you have these reoccur- or these one-off guest stars. And, you know, I've spent almost a decade on film sets and I started off as a first team PA. So, you know, I was the one in charge of all of the different actors and then assisting Jesse. You know, I was working, you know, on the sidelines of sidelines with really wonderful people and kind of a lot of people who said, when you make something, I'm there. And when I made something, I called them and like Sherry Appleby, Jemaine Clement, Jemima Kirk, like people actually showed up and held to their word and they meant what they said. And that was really moving. But the idea of, you know, I was making a series for under a million dollars. It was like season one was half a million. And so to build an audience, there was, I think, a different, uh, a specific desire to make 
the show that I wanted with the heart and tonality mm-hmm. that I wanted, but also the appeal of having someone who is a bigger cast member who has their own audience. Yeah. Now, one thing I don't quite understand about the Facebook model is that they have- Just a, one? Yeah, yeah. They have, well, I mean, I have liked it and poked it twice, but they have <laughs> a schedule. So your show is on at a time, like shows are on at times, right? What what time is it on? It's on at 9 p.m. Yeah. Eastern time. What is the point? I don't understand the point of that because I've never watched it at 9 on Eastern time. I've just watched every episode that's there and also all other streaming service. I understand why a TV channel would have that, but all other streaming services are just on demand. So why do they actually, what, what do they get out of having an actual schedule? That is such an excellent question. <laughs> yeah. Um, occasionally a question I ask myself, uh-huh. but- You know what? They have their strategy. They're letting me make my show the way I want to, with the characters I want to, and the storylines that I want to. And so, you know, there's, I don't fully understand the world that they're creating within their network, but I think that they've taken a major risk in terms of this being one of their first proper half hours in terms of narrative. And, you know, it's about a biracial, bisexual female protagonist made by you know, a 31-year-old queer woman who's never made TV before. So I think that's a pretty bold decision. And if they want um, to air it at 9, God damn And if it, they want to air it at 9 p.m., I will support that. Mia Ladovsky is the creator, a co-writer, and director of Strangers, which you could find, you know, at 9 o'clock or whatever on Facebook. But it's also there all the time. I don't want to mislead you. It really is on demand once they've aired once. Mia, great to meet you. So It's so lovely to meet you, Mike. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let us now praise famous men and women, because John McCain and Aretha Franklin both had funeral services today. They contrasted a bit. Here's some of the McCain service. I've long joked that his guards at the Hanoi Hilton probably needed group therapy after John was finished with them. I wonder if Mitch McConnell's long joke ever even got a short laugh. On the other hand, there was Aretha Franklin's send-off. That's Pastor Shirley Caesar. I love all those fills, the the organ punctuating the speech. And then Pastor Caesar was joined by Tasha Cobbs Leonard singing How I Got Over. Now that's a send-off. But of course, the Queen of Soul is going to be marked by something soulful, and it's not a surprise that the grandson of an admiral and the son of an admiral and Navy veteran himself, John McCain's funeral, would be marked with the austerity of the military. Yesterday, there was a memorial service for McCain that was a little looser, but today was quite solemn. And we, as citizens, as viewers, we saw it all. Washington hasn't exactly stopped for almost a full week, but it paused 
to remember and celebrate John McCain, I have to say, to a degree that I was kind of surprised by. I agree that John McCain was a great American, and his is a great American story, even if he wasn't the model of a senator in every way. But the attention, I think, was a bit more copious than I would have expected. And I was wondering why McCain is so fondly remembered, so widely remembered. And I hit upon this. So you have character, and character is internal, and the world can never fully know what to think of or how to assess a person's character. So that's why we have personality. And personality is outward-facing, but may not be much more than a show or a facade. In fact, sometimes we don't even care if personality is more than a show. But when the personality is glowing, and it seems to match the character underneath, then we as a species find that satisfying. That is a large part in how we define greatness. But there is something unfair about that, isn't it? John McCain was a real person who did great things, but he was also a myth. And I don't mean myth in the sense of falsehood, but he was a story. He was, in fact, the kind of story we like to tell ourselves about ourselves. But that's not fair. It's not fair to people of good character who sparkled a little less brightly or who people paid attention to less. But it's also important because we're talking about a public servant. And the good that a public servant does shouldn't mostly be in the myth that he or she embodies. A public servant is tasked with enacting laws and programs that help us, that serve us. Yeah, credit to McCain. He behaved as a human being, not a lawmaking robot, and he was not a brainless automaton or an ideologue, and that speaks well of him as a person, but we're owed more than just that as citizens. So I was casting about for another public servant who will be remembered less than John McCain, but who embodied the idea of public service at least as much as he did, and I think I found a good one. I got there when I was listening to Joe Biden's eulogy of McCain, which you may have seen or heard. You see, understood what I hope we all remember. Heroes didn't build this country. Ordinary people being given half a chance are capable of doing extraordinary things. Extraordinary things. It was striking. It was great. And it reminded me of a eulogy that Joe Biden delivered 15 years ago. And a lot of the words that Joe Biden said about the deceased then would have applied to McCain today. That you already do know, but it's worth saying. It's always worth saying. He was an honorable man. He was an honorable man. He was complex and he was whole. Joe Biden was eulogizing yesterday and all those years ago, a Republican senator, a person who he considered a friend, a person whose work had a big impact on America today. And I will name the senator from back then that he was eulogizing. And I bet, unless you're over 50 years old or from Delaware, you you won't recognize it. His name was William Roth. Maybe you know the Roth IRA that was named for him. And maybe you're familiar with those investigations into military overspending. So another senator named William Proxmire invented the Golden Fleece. He pointed a lot of attention to this sort of thing. But Bill Roth did too. He once went out, spent a couple of hundred dollars at hardware stores for equipment that the military spent over $100,000 on. Roth was a tax cutter, which has a negative connotation today because of the Club for Growth and Grover Norquist and all 
all those guys. But back then, the cuts that he was advocating for was to take the top rate from 75% down to 50%. Remember, the highest rate now is in the mid-30s. Roth was a fierce advocate for empowering citizens to save money. That's why there's the Roth IRA. And he was an economic pragmatist. Here's some more of what Roth stood for, according to Joe Biden's eulogy delivered in 2003. Bill Roth used to actually shock my my colleagues, my Democratic colleagues. How could this guy who was so much a classic Republican on taxes, how could he care so much about women's rights? Bill Roth, along with Bob Dole, made sure that handicapped people had access to everything, to everything. It was part of the fire in Bill. And when Bill Ross stood up the last 10 years, he was in the Senate and said, there will be no drilling in Alaska. Pretty great stances, especially from a Republican, especially because unlike a lot of John McCain's stances, they weren't just stances, but they actually were policy. Then Joe Biden added, primarily responsible for balancing the federal budget for the first time in God knows how long. And God knows how long we'll wait to see it again. And we're still waiting. Hearing those words of praise by Joe Biden for a senator who's largely forgotten, you are struck by how similar they are to the words of praise he had for the man who is quite celebrated today. Let us also note that the deeds of the hardly remembered Bill Roth in many ways eclipse the deeds, the actual legislative deeds of the quite celebrated John McCain. And my point isn't that McCain doesn't deserve praise. It's it's to suggest that Well, Bill Roth does, and also to suggest that there are many, many other Bill Roths. When McCain passed away, a common question was, who will ever replace him? Will we ever see his like again? And I think the best answer is yes. We're probably seeing versions of it right now, and we've consistently seen it before. Not making progress is a big flaw in America, but almost as big is the fact that we seem unable to recognize the progress that we have made and to fully remember those, all of those, who helped us achieve this progress along the way. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, Pierre Biennemi, as well. He was another guy who helped the Schrader fellow producing The Gist. These two producers have been watching the ring cycle on Snapchat. Not much of a cycle, more brief bursts of Norse gods and funny filters. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is pioneering the first podcast on the Yelp app. Please leave a rating, which is the motto of the show and the name of the show. The Gist. As long as they have TV shows on Facebook, soon they'll be using TV to post annoying pictures of kids and and bragging about your talentless offspring. Oh, wait, Kathy Lee Gifford and Hulk Hogan already pioneered that. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.